Hi everyone, this is Jackie Cooper with the GBA Talk Show as well as Crypto Mom 2. And I want to welcome everyone to this episode. I also want you to remind you to like and subscribe uh, because there are many great conversations that will be happening and that will be uploaded shortly. So I definitely don't want you to miss any. So for those that don't know about the GBA, um, this is an association that um, is doing some great work in the education space, in the um, the development space in the blockchain. And there are individuals who are members of the association that you need to get to know. And so it's, I've been doing a variety of talk shows trying to highlight each member. There are over 400 members and at least twice a year, even though they do have weekly and also monthly events, but at least twice a year, we have major events um, in Washington and other locations. And so that's something that you probably want to go to the gbaglobal.org website to see when the next event is. And I know that it'll be in September and it will be all about um, AI, artificial intelligence and what's going on in that space. So for those that don't know who I am, uh, again, I want to welcome everyone. Um, my background is I'm law, a lawyer but I'm also a blockchain consultant and I'm also an educator in the special education field. And I'm also an author. So I got involved in the blockchain area about five years ago, even though my guest today has been into this area for a lot longer than me. And he's going to share a lot of his wisdom and insight. Uh, but I have loved meeting uh, the individuals within the blockchain space because it feels as if the problems are being solved with the use of this technology. And so that's why I also am excited to be the talk show host. So that way, different areas of what we're doing can be highlighted and you can see how it can apply to you. So with that, I would like to welcome Russell to uh, the GBA talk show. How are you doing today, Russell? I'm doing great, Jackie. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. So your background is so diverse. And I know that you... Um, have had your hand in the blockchain for a while. You've um, created different conferences. You have mentored people. And I, I don't want to do uh, your background in injustice. So why don't you kind of give an overview as to how you got started? And and then I can kind of ask questions and I can we can have a, a, a broader chat. Sure. Um, so, so interestingly enough, I... Uh... I cut my teeth. So my first really big project um, in, in IT was, of course, I, I actually, so I, I should say that I sort of came up from the open space, from the uh, office space um, sort of sort of time. So when I was, when I had like my first contracting job, I was at an MCI call center writing call center software. Wow. And, and then those days, it really was like, you're programming computers. Can't, can you think of a worse job? Like, like it was the worst it was, it was like really not a job that you wanted, you know? Um, and, uh, and, but I loved it. And, um, and I, I loved it. Well, I loved working there. I loved being able to, you know, code and make changes and suddenly behaviors change. And it was really great. But what I ended up doing was traveling all around and deploying software. And, uh, and, and back then everybody had screensavers installed and the screensavers would crash your software. It was unbelievable. Computers were just very different back then. I remember and, uh, and so I got into this programming language called Java because it handled all the networking stuff, which most other languages didn't have networking built in. And um, eventually found myself, in, once, once doing consulting, 
in a, in a, a project running the um, universal card services, so AT&T universal card, their charge card um, services, and they had a website. It was the first website where you could go online, look at your bill online and pay, and, and pay various bills with your credit card that were all inside the AT&T system. And this was totally novel. And so we created that and um, and LinkedIn using Java and mainframes, doing stuff like with duct tape, kind of like having an MGB, you know, you just tape it, duct tape and it goes for another hundred miles. And, uh, and it was amazing and I loved it and I was hooked. So e-commerce was my you know first love. And, and luckily I happened to work on the first e-commerce website in the United States for credit cards. So it, it, was, it was like mind blowing. Yeah. This is back in the days when when eBay you sent uh, you sent a money order to, to eBay so to to get your your stuff shipped. So that was pre-e-commerce. And uh I was able to do a lot of really exciting projects. Um, but ended up, I was kind of unhappy with how the consulting sort of things worked. And I ended up going to Hawaii, for, you know, ostensibly on the way to, uh, to New Zealand or, or, or Australia with my wife, because we wanted to go down that way. We were going to be there in Hawaii for two years um, and then move on. Uh, we ended up staying there for 20 years. Um, but while I was there, um, I ended up... Um, working with a company called Hawaii Information Consortium and starting as their IT director and then became the CEO of the company. And we did all of the e-government for the state of Hawaii. So back then it was, a, it was a really, really novel approach. They said, we want to invite as many different companies to come in and, and do all of our e-government services at no cost. And uh, as a result of this, you could have a small transaction fee on everything. So uh, everything from paying your taxes and filing your taxes to um, to your water bills, to ordering birth certificates, to online marriages, to ordering Obama's birth certificate. That was a big one. <laughs> um, you know, those were, were so we did all those applications and the state of Hawaii moved from being, I think, 35th to number one um, in 2013, which was sort of a, the culmination of of all of uh, all this cool stuff that we did. And um, around that same time. Uh, the state of Hawaii was the first state to legalize medical marijuana dispensaries um, by, the, by its legislature. There had been two other states that had done it through um, ballot measures, but we were the first ones to do it through, um, through the legislature. And uh, the fee was $10,000, and none of these folks had bank accounts. And so uh, this was like late 2013, 20, early 2014. And so I was tasked to find how we were going to take payments because we couldn't make any money if we couldn't take payments mm -hmm. uh, to, to do this service. And, uh, and so this thing, Bitcoin came up and I, of course, like went to South by Southwest and found out everything I could about, you know, attended all, the, all, all that stuff. And we actually developed a system to accept uh, Bitcoin payments for, um, for dispensary licenses, wow. and a week before we were going to go live, uh, the legislators changed, uh, made some changes to the bill to make it so that you had to pay with a paper check because the bank commissioner was so concerned. I want to interrupt for a quick second because you were saying 2013. So for those that might not know the history of Bitcoin, it was only in existence for about four or five years at that point. Yeah. So it was very young. It was, so, it was very early. It was very inexpensive yeah. back then. It was, you know, yeah. it really was, you may pay the, you know, the fees that you paid to send a transaction were like pennies, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, and there was nothing else like it, you know, 
this was even before any of the forks came like Bitcoin Cash and stuff like that. So this was very early. And, uh, and anyway, so that sort of fell through, but I had already sort of been hooked, you know, and, um, and so um, I ended up leaving a Hawaii Information Consortium, um, which was NIC, and then they got bought by Tyler. Um, and they're, they're still like a huge presence in government and especially in state government and municipal government. Um, and, uh, and started a company called Wampay. And Wampay was allowing um, any, any person or any company to accept crypto payments without a bank, without any financial industry stuff. And, uh, and you know, this meant that you didn't need to have, you know, there were no on-ramps and off-ramps that were really easy to use back then. You had to go through an exchange to get, to get crypto, to get Bitcoin. And so, um, so it really didn't handle any of the on-ramp, off-ramp, just made it. So if you have a business, you can set up using the software, you set up a register and you can accept Bitcoin as payments. And um, for those that are listening, I know that when I first started in the space, I was looking for um, a point of sale operation like that. So I know how invaluable what you created is because uh, it's changed since then. You know, now there are a lot more companies doing that, but you were you were frontline. You were you were definitely looking at a problem that needed to be solved. Yeah, it was it was definitely bleeding edge and I definitely bled a lot. <laughs> You know, and and but what you know, what was really interesting, and I, I should mention, like one of the pro, one of the things that we did was, um, you know, most um, most counties have like a court recorder office, and so they have the titles and everything in their document system. And in the state of Hawaii, there was a statewide one, and so one of the things we did was we re-implemented the whole statewide um, titling system. For, uh, for the state. And I learned a lot and that we actually thought about doing some blockchain stuff on that. But at the time, and a lot of government folks will understand this, there's type one, type two, and type three documents where um, it's all about whether it's native electronic or scanned and whether you have a digital signature on it or it's a scanned signature. And, um, and, and so one of the things we realized is because there was no real digital identity that you could say that this person signed it or this company was okay with it, you ended up having to paper out everything, print it, and then scan it again. So it didn't really save anything. So we didn't do it when I was in government then. And this will be important later on. Uh, but so um, I moved away from Hawaii because Hawaii turns out was, the, was the, at the time the second worst state to do anything with crypto. I would say it was actually the worst because whenever you fly anywhere, you have to fly five hours. Um, so uh, minimum. So I was, uh, so we moved to Colorado and moved to Colorado for, for a number of reasons. But one of the biggest was because they have this thing called um, the, um, the TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which means that no new taxes ca can be levied unless they come up in a ballot. So you have to pass taxes by a ballot measure, which meant short, you know, long story short, the budget of the state is constrained very significantly, much more than it would be for a state with similar population and, and, and economic stature. So my, my thinking is that in states that have lower budgets, they have to be scrappier and they can't afford to bring in the top three consulting firms to sp spend a lot of money on a project and have it not work anyway, right? So, um, so uh, no offense to anyone who works for any of this, but, <laughs> um, but that, that turned out to be the truth. So about a year later, um, the governor, Governor Polis, who um, is was one of the early adopters of Bitcoin? He actually took donations and 
tried to get tried to uh, put forth the uh, the first um, cryptocurrency bill in federal uh, in the federal um, I think in the House. He came on and was like, you know, we're blockchain for the win. And so I spoke to him and some folks at the Office of Information Technology and started as the director of digital transformation. And um, my one of my biggest projects and probably the one I'm most proud of was implementing the, fir the, the first um, digital state ID. Um, and it wasn't done outsourced or anything. It was all in-house, in um, all in, in, you know, with our own folks. Um, and partners that we were using. And it was amazing. And um, and the big thing was there are two or three different companies that really control like printing driver's licenses. And they were um, they were the ones that were going to get this business. And the idea that the same companies that like have all of our driver's license printed out in Poland and shipped here to us to, to, you know, to you to do things. It made a lot more sense to keep identity as owned by in the state, in the state of Colorado, the DMV, the DMV owns it and they should own it and they should own the app as well. You shouldn't outsource that. Um, there are some other companies out there like, like uh, Idemia is one of the big ones um, and nothing against them. I just don't know that we want to outsource our identity to a corporation you know, for, for all of our, all of our citizens. And we showed them that um, we could be more successful than any of their projects had been. And in fact, um, within um, 18 months of launching, um, not only had we um, all also added on functionality to handle all the, the, um, all the vaccination stuff, because vaccination proof was really important. Not only did we have that, but you could also electronically share that or your driver's license, insurance card, registration electronically with a police officer so that they, you know, shortened the amount of time if you got pulled over. It, it made a lot of things really, really amazing. And that's About why- What year was this going on? So so that now we've gotten to 2020. Got it. Okay. So like, um, yeah, I think 2020, 2021 was really when it, um, you know, it took off. And we really started growing and a lot of the vaccine stuff drew build that too. But you think California, New York, they implemented these vaccine registration systems to show your, you know, your smart vaccination card. Um, they paid, um, I think in this case of New York, it was like $90 million in the states of California. In, in California, it was somewhere at 75 million. Um, and we did it for um, about $600,000. We added it on to um, to my Colorado, which is the digital driver's license, and we have over a million people using it here in Colorado. Um, the police accept it; everyone accepts it. As, as a, it's not yet working with the uh, with the airlines, but or the TSA, but um, nobody else has any footprint like that as as far as a digital a state accepted digital ID. Um, so I'm very proud of that, and I was very excited, and and it was. As much as much of a reason as keeping the control of all this personal information in the government as opposed to a third party, but also the model of using an electronic means to prove you are who you say you are. There are so many component aspects of business and government that are slowed down because of the analog nature of identity. Yes. Even when you want to get a cell phone, 
you can't just get, you have to show someone your driver's license before they'll even give you a cell phone, right? If you go to the bank, they have to do all these KYC. And if you're doing online KYC, typically that's costing, you know, somewhere around 80 bucks for a bank to onboard you. Um, or if you want to prove, you know, like when we were doing in Hawaii, when we were letting people order birth certificates and I made the joke about Obama's birth certificate, but how do you prove that someone is supposed to be able to order this, this document? Yeah. Right. Um, and, and it's all, anal it was all analog. And so now we've moved into a place where not only can you have electronic payments and things, but you can have electronic identity. And this is like the, the, the reason why this is so important is it's, in my opinion, the primary difference between web two and web three. I was about to ask you to go there yeah. because again, it just seemed like a natural connection. Yes. Yeah. And so, so web two, you have all these platforms, Amazon, Facebook, fill in the blank. They're all, they're, they're all out there, Google. Um, and they have your identity information. You have login credentials. You may have security. Maybe you have a little fob that gives you numbers that you put in. Maybe you get texted a, a, a separate message. There's all these different security measures, but all of your information, if you want to make payments, it's in their system, right? They have, they hold that. They have custody of that information, your payment information, your history, healthcare, all your healthcare records. All those kinds of things are, are owned by those platforms. Now, and I don't think I don't think we realize as individuals how much we give away as we grow up and we say yes to giving personal identity and information to different organizations. So you're right. Yeah. We are um, our our privacy has been uh, eroded, basically. Yeah, well, it's it's been made almost obsolete. Mm -hmm. um, and and what Web three does is it makes that approach obsolete because along with the platforms owning your data they are now a honeypot for hackers to come in and attack them because a, a state level attack to get 4 billion users information or maybe maybe 4 million or 40 million you know depending on the platform suddenly makes sense right using those that, that that amount of resources not to say that it's a state attacking us but but something that would be a state level attack that kind of sophistication whereas that information is owned by an individual that's costs a whole lot to get a million people's information, right? Um, so, so it's a, it's a lot safer and you have agency over your own information. Again, there's no place that's more clear than this in healthcare records, right? You, before the pandemic, right? If you wanted to get your vaccination record, it was actually very difficult. It was a real pain to go, to go enroll your kid in school to show the vaccination record um, was, kind of a horrible task. So with our vaccination records, it was the first time we really started being able to own our own healthcare information. Just the vaccination information, just, just you know, all your history, flu shots and all that kind of stuff. But it was the first time and it, you know, and it was important for people to see how easy it made their lives, right? This was a secure method for verifying that a state or a particular healthcare system said you had the the you had the the shots that you needed right you know that as a traveler a global traveler i know sometimes it's difficult especially if you get sick to be able to share health information when you need it and yeah. the idea that what you're talking about um can be then owned by the individual shared um in a different way 
I think is, I know you're going to talk about different use cases, but I, I see the application in so many levels. Oh, right. So, so what this does is it, it, the problem is, is that moving that information from these servers to the individual means that we as individuals now are responsible for managing our data. So we can't be as lazy, right? We have to be a lot more security conscious. Um, just like you're carrying a wallet around, somebody gets your wallet, they have everything in there. You know, in your wallet, you have to be careful what you carry in your wallet. You don't carry $50,000 in cash in your wallet, other than it would be a really big wallet. Um, but uh, you, you don't do that because that's just dumb. You know, um, the same thing with, with, your, with your electronic wallet. You don't have information in there that's easily accessible and use it in a way that, that makes it easy, an easy target of it. But, um, but what it also does is it means that these systems, so look at, look at like, uh, like your, you go with your, your insurance company and you order your insurance, you, you know, you, you want to get a quote. Well, they need to get a copy of your driver's license and they essentially need you to give them permission to ask the state for your driver record. They go to a third party like a LexisNexis or somebody like that, and they buy it from one of the data aggregators who bought it from a company that sells that information for the DMV. And all that information is changing hands. All your information is going through all that. That's a lot of infrastructure. That's a lot of labor. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of money pulling money. That's a lot of people pulling money out of those transactions that cost you. On the other hand, if you can now just basically um, scan something that, that, you know, you say, yes, send my, um, send this information to them. And so now an electronic version of your driver record gets sent directly to the insurance company. Wow. That changes everything about that whole ecosystem. And it means that you didn't have to go through a data aggregator or any of these other intermediaries. It just goes straight from the DMV to the, you know, to wherever you wanted it. And you can leverage blockchain to do that and to verify that this information is there. That's world changing. That changes everything um, about payments. Instead of trusting a platform with your payment information, they can just, a message pops up on a wallet and you say, do you want to send this to this entity? Yes. Boom. Right. That is the promise of Web3. And it also lowers the cost of implementing all of those systems, right? So the companies that provide those services no longer have to have these servers protecting all this data that they're, that's as much a liability as it is an asset to them. So let me ask you a question though. With, um, you talk about servers. So we're gonna be navigating, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're gonna be navigating from servers to nodes, to blockchain, What what's gonna store this information? And depending upon what's storing this information, what would the individual need to be thinking about in terms of where that is stored or how to, like you say, trust that there, there still might have to be a home for that information. Yeah, and so this is where the um, where you know, it would actually be easier for people from thirty years ago to understand Web three technology than for people who are who are currently there because we've learned about the cloud and servers and farms and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. The truth is, is that where the infrastructure is doesn't necessarily change that much. Okay, how it's paid for and how it's hosted does. Okay. Um, and also keep in mind that under no circumstance should anybody be storing 
PII, personal identifiable information, those sensitive data in a blockchain because most blockchains are public sure. and even the private blockchain are owned by whoever it is that's running it. So, that's very so, true. so you're not storing the data in the blockchain, except about the transactions. You know, it's really just a big ledger. Um, but what you are storing is proofs that this information has been signed off. So what I can do is I can share, oh, this is my information. And then there's a proof that says, yes, this, that, that this was signed by the state of Colorado or the state of Hawaii or whoever, that this person, Russell Castagnero, is indeed this age, right? And alive, <laughs> you know, um, you know, or so, so that uses things like verifiable credentials, which are also, which was part of the, uh, um, part of the, the pandemic, the, the, verif the, uh, um, the, ver what are the electronic, uh, um, vaccination cards. Mm -hmm. So, um, so remember the data, more of the private data and everything is stored locally for you on your phone, right? Um, when it comes to blockchain and stuff, right? You know, blockchain, Bitcoin, US dollar coin, whatever it is, that's stored on a blockchain somewhere that's public and you use encryption to make sure that you and only you have the keys. So that you're the only one that has that can move the funds that are in that address, right? So, so there's still, you know, a lot of times people call it web 2.5. So it incorporates parts of web three and parts of web two. Um, just imagine trying to do accounting if you could never save the note on the ledger to say why you paid it, right? Yeah. For you, that's not for somebody else. So anybody who's done, I mean, I know Gerard who runs GBA, right? Talks about like his first year where he spent all this, all this money on, you know, transactions, like $5 at a time. And the IRS came after him and because, you know, they wanted proof of what everything was and it was really hard, you know, there's the public information about the, the essentially where the money is, where it went, but you still have to store that information somewhere else. So there's, the servers are still there. The nodes are still on the cloud or hosted in somebody's house, just like all computers have been, you know, uh, you know, have been going, that's still happening, but there's the pro the public network, which is the blockchains, the public blockchains. And then there's the private network, which is the proprietary information that's either your phone or you or your company's servers or some such stuff like that. So when we, when we like, like now at, uh, at Buffercorn Ventures, if we fund, an, uh, fund a new company, we send them US dollar coin transactions. So we send them $50,000 or something. We have a note in our ledger, our private ledger, that this transaction ID was was sent to this party for this reason. We didn't have that. We couldn't do our account, right? So you still, it doesn't get rid of that. It just means that you can follow the money wherever it goes, Got right? It. You have the pseudo-anonymous links to the, to the wallet addresses that all the things are going to. So it changes the makeup of everything. The same resources are being used, but now where a company used to have to pay somewhere between two and 10% on like its financial transaction and securing those and its data, maybe that's all handled by the transaction fees that you send whenever you send a transaction back and forth, right? So that's still running on the cloud somewhere, but it's on a public node and the funding mechanism is the transaction fee that you pay, the mining fee in Bitcoin or the gas fee if you're in like an Ethereum type, um, type of crypto. I, I, since you mentioned Ethereum, I just want to kind of um, ask you a little bit about ETH Denver and also about some of the other conferences that we've talked about. 
um, you started that um, and you're involved with other um, conferences. Tell us a little bit more so that way if people want to continue their education um, and get involved, how would they do that? So I didn't start it. I, I did attend the first one, but I was, uh, um, but but really it was very small. And, and so East Denver started in 2018 um, and, or 2017. And it was like really small and it's grown. And every year it has been the biggest Web3 blockchain. Um, we don't like to call it a conference because it's a lot more than that, but we call it a, fe a festival. Yeah. Um, and um, at that conference, which happens every year, end of, end of February, beginning of March, um, in Denver, Colorado. And uh, it's made up of about 40 to 50% people who are new to Web3 and blockchain, um, about a third of people who are diehard, living it, loving it, breathing it, you know, and and then everybody else sort of in the middle. Um, it is um, one of the best places to go to get an introduction. It's it's a it's a you know sort of red grill, red bill, red pill blue pill moments, right? When you're there and, and, you know, you choose your fates and it's, it's really fantastic. It's a great, uh, a great way to, to get, to, to fully embed yourself in it. And it actually lasts um, almost, almost 10 days. So there's, there's a week of pre, they call it the, um, the, the biddle week. And if you've ever heard of like HODL, there was a yeah. back in the day, the misspelling of, of hold, it was HODL. And so biddle is the same thing. It's just a, it's a misspelling of, of, uh, of build. So the idea is for building new software. So they do that for a week and then they have, we have the actual event East Denver um, for three days following that. Um, so that happens in um, every year, February or March. Uh, and then you've got other events coming up, you know, like, uh, like ECC is a, is a, is a huge one in France, uh, in Paris, that um, is uh, really, really um, a great one to go to. Another one I really like um, is ETH Toronto that happens in August. And ETH Toronto is, um, it's a smaller conference, but what's really cool about, about, about Canada is their sort of mindset of how they look at, um, at crypto is a little behind and, and, maybe the United States were a little too far forward, you know, like looking a little too far and they're a little, they're a little behind us. And so they, um, and I don't mean that as a bad thing. I mean it that they're looking at some of the more practical things. So, so for instance, um, when I did WAMPAY, you know, it was all about payments, simple, fast payments in the, um, in, in, in the U S like at ETH Denver and in some of the other places they're thinking about, Oh, composable objects and NFTs and, 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 you know, all these different, like really complicated implementations. And, you know, last year, for instance, when I went back to Toronto, they were still talking about payments. And what's crazy is the technology has made payments so much better than they were back then. And they were already better than they were for credit cards, but now like payment technology based on like Ethereum and blockchain is a no brainer. And if you're anywhere, but, um, but a you know a G7 country, you're already it's already there, right? You're already using it because it's so much less expensive than everything else. Uh, so so I really like to see because they they have the advantages. Anybody can see the technology. You know the technology is out there for everybody, but their perspective is a little different, and it's really cool to see how far ahead of they of, of where they are now because of that. It, it's just really interesting. And then you already mentioned in September you got the um, the infrastructure blockchain an AI thing that's going to be happening in Washington for GBA, which 
should be a blast. I think I think it, it's going to be really well timed because one of the problems that I think blockchain can help us with is with these uh, these AI models, um, the software that's beneath them. Maybe not the models themselves, but the software themselves itself. Um, we could actually, you know, have a, a national registry where you had to, you know, actually post on on a on a on a blockchain, whether it was a public blockchain or a government-run blockchain. You could you could post if you were having a a uh, general intelligence, you know, generally applicable a, a, um, AI application. You could all your software revisions that were major. You'd have to post it up there so that you'd know if. It starts telling people, you know, it sounds that's horrible. Maybe you should go kill yourself, you know, which is something that people are really afraid of when you have like chat GPT. Is it going to say something that is completely inappropriate? You probably, you probably heard about the, uh, the, the thing with the guy from the New York Times and it was trying to convince him to leave his wife and uh, because it really loved him and it had a new name and it was just remarkable, all these things. But, you know, blockchain could help us track some of that at least and do effective forensics which we don't have a way of doing much in the way of forensics as far as the the, the code that's deployed for a lot of these systems so i'm i'm looking forward to seeing um where we are in september um, and that'll be really fun to do it there with legislators who really need to see this stuff yeah um, i'm looking forward to that too because i know at this last conference that we had in may um, there were definitely a lot of thought leaders from the UN to a lot of, you know, government to private businesses. So it's definitely a place to um, to learn and to ask questions, especially if you're in the know or you need to know. So um, I I know that we're going to have many conversations because of how deep your knowledge is. But if there is um, something that you would like uh, the listeners to take away from our conversation and also um, a way for them to contact you if they would like to, you know, connect with you. Uh, why don't you share, you know, those two areas? Sure. I, I think um, one thing I really want people to understand is, um, you know, when when fax machines were, were big, um, I remember we used to take orders on the fax machines and um, we had a problem with fax machine spam. And um, and they say, oh, yes, here's the wire information. Make sure you send this to the war. They would try and make these really official looking um, fax machine things and phone like how many people like I'd like to talk to you about your uh, your your warranty for your automobile, you know, and and all these kinds of things. So every technology is riddled with scams. Technology yeah. makes scams easier. Right. So blockchain Web3 technology is no different. Um caveat emptor, right? You need to, um, you need to be aware. Um, you need to tell your kids with social media, there's new risks out there, right? So, so yes, new technologies do make things easier. When it, when you make it easier to pay, you've made it easier to pay. So it's easier for you to get scammed on Craigslist by someone selling you a ticket, right? Absolutely. Um, however, that's not a good reason to get rid of a technology. Exactly. Right. So look, most of us aren't going to spend $10,000 for an NFT uh, because that is our judgment call. And we feel that that's unwise. And I think, you know, the same way I wouldn't spend $10,000 for a piece of art because I have things I need to do with my money. Right. So th that's not going to most of us. Now, 
things like like the exchanges that are having problems like now with Binance and with uh, with um, FTX and stuff. Those were not like that wasn't about technology. That was about a scam. That was a conventional finance scam that used blockchain assets, but it was a conventional scam, you know. And so, you know, you have to you know you have to separate those sorts of things. The fact is, is that blockchain for the first time has proven that it's actually better than the banking system, right? The banking system is a fractional reserve system. And as we add, we keep on adding all these things to, to the banking system, ATMs. ATMs are great, saves the bank money. I'm not so excited about that, but it, I'm glad that I can get access to my money. I don't have to wait in line to cash a check, you know, to get things. 24 access to our, our access to, to your money, sending electronic payments back and forth, all these integrations, they make, you know, the fractional reserve system much less resilient because part of the fractional reserve system is, oh, you can hold on to that check for two days until you can pull the money in from your reserves to cover it, right? That's fractional reserve. That's the basis yeah. of it. Um, if 50% of, your, of your, your holders come in, you have a Silicon Valley bank situation. Yes, you do. Right? So, so what you have with, with something like a stable coin, the stable coins that are out there, you have actually a much safer way of holding your money than holding your money in banks and you can stake them and do things to, and get money. So there are very legitimate, very good uses, which all the all the big money, all the good money and, and the investment firms, and all that, they're already, they know this is the way. It's just a matter of whether it is the way that they will own or the way the public will own. So you have to keep those kinds of things in mind. Um, so don't be afraid of the technology. Don't be afraid of that. Think of it as a new way of having agency over your own money over your own data, over your own, over the control of your life. There are great projects out there like Opolis for people that leverages blockchain to let people who are contractors have control over their healthcare and their career and how, they're, how they, they make their livelihood over their time. And that's based on blockchain technology. There are, you know, everyone loves to hate Ticketmaster because they're imminently hateable. You know, they're really, it's fun to hate Ticketmaster because they kind of, make everyone feel, you know, abused by the prices that they charge. Blockchain's going to knock them off their socks, right? All these ticketing, these ticketing franchises. Um, like I already mentioned the data aggregators, um, the payment providers, they're, they're, all, they're all looking because the technology can do much more efficiently what their proprietary and very expensive systems do for them. You, you mentioned a uh you know, the ticket master. And all I kept thinking about when you mentioned that is like Blockbuster, you know, when, you know, Netflix have, you know, again, as the technology changes, you have to evolve as well. I mean, when um, I remember Ing. Yeah. I remember Ing being a bank online and thinking to myself, who would want to put their money online? And then we also got the debit cards. You know, again, it was like the idea that we're starting to, we started to move from the physical cash to the electronic cash. Each each step, everyone had the naysayers saying, oh, no one's going to like this. And now we're just automatically using it and we've integrated it. So I think you're right on the blockchain side and the the technology as it evolves the, with the uses, um, it's going to be easier and um, more secure. 
uh, and it will be interesting to see what happens. I can't wait to see the government, you know, the ways that now the government can use it. You know, one of the um, one of the, the groups I worked really closely with when I was in Hawaii was the um, Department of, uh, well, the bu business registrations, which in a lot of states is the, um, is the um, um, what's it called? Not the lieutenant governor, but the, um, I don't know why I lost the- Not the, not the attorney general. Uh, the attorney general either, yeah. Why not? not the controller. <laughs> yeah. but, but anyway, so, so there's, um, so there are all these services that are essentially registries. Yeah, you, know, you register your business. It's not they're not doing research to make sure. It's just that's the official registry. Just imagine if you had all of the state registries. Now we're working in the same system. It was a blockchain, and they all had right access into their own state's records. And then everybody could just go twenty four seven and look it up on an explorer, and you would see this name. Oh, it's registered in all these different states. You now have to go through a pretty you know, horrible experience to get all that, all that information, or you have to use a third party to do it for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing doesn't have to happen. Um, for, you know, for already tax offices are starting to like use email finally to give notices but when they can feel when they can clearly give secure messaging to let people know for benefits programs. Oh, if you don't, you know, do this by tomorrow, you're going to lose your benefits. Well, if they're waiting for the mail, they're not going to get it in time. And if their address has been changed, they're certainly not going to get it. You know, but if it goes to their phone because it's tied to their wallet information, they can get it. So there's so many really great um, aspects of blockchain that government is going to be able to use. Even when I was at the at the state of Colorado, I recommended we made our own internal cryptocurrency that we used for budgeting. So you'd know you know, you basically, it's funny money, you know, um, co-bucks or something like that. But you, whenever you wanted to spend something, you would spend it out of a wallet and that was traceable and you'd know where it goes. And of course the checks, when they get written, still have to get written by the comptroller. You still have that control. It's not like you're, they're minting money or something, but then you'd have hundred percent visibility into where the money goes, where, where, um, what a great use of, of, you know, of technology. And there's going to be a governor who's going to, going to say, you know, we need to try this. And yeah, I, I can definitely see how from an accounting perspective, all you're doing is um, it sort of is like what's going on with um, the lightning, you know, with Bitcoin. You know, it's again, you have an off layer type of platform that's accounting for a transaction. And then when you finally want to have it debited, it just goes you know, down. So yeah. there's a lot of multiple uses for it. Um, if someone wanted to contact you, what's the best way? Um, easiest is uh, Russell at ethdenver.com, ethdenver.com, or uh, Russell at castagnero.com, my last name. They just look me up on uh, LinkedIn, and there's seven kajillion different uh, addresses up there. So. And I will definitely have, for all those that are listening on the, on the audio side or on the Zoom side, I'll definitely have uh, Russell's contact information, so that way you can reach out if you have a question or idea that you want to run by him. Um, thank you so much for being on. I know that, like I said, we're going to have more than one episode because there's a lot of other conversation that we can have. Uh, for, again, for those that are, are listening to the GBA talk show, definitely like and subscribe. And again, for those that are on the Crypto Mom 2, definitely do that as well. But as I always say on all my talk shows, be kind to yourself, be kind to others. We are also interconnected and we live in one world. So thank you so much and have a great day.